Hey, everybody. Welcome to the book Leads Impactful Books for Life and Leadership. I'm your series host and leadership performance coach, John Germillo. This podcast series is about getting to the books that have impacted the lives and the work and the businesses of people in my network, uh, connections that I've had for a while, new connections, expanding connections, uh, just based on the series and my growing network. I consider these interviews, these conversations, great leads to books that make that kind of a difference in people's worlds and lives. So in this particular series, I cover three types of books. The first book where my guest is sharing a book with me that I haven't read, a second category of books where we've both covered the book or both read the book, whether specifically for that episode or we read it in our previous lives. And then the third category is the category of authors and publishers, those who have come on to discuss the book that they've put out there into the world trying to share the message of what they want to share with this audience, with their target market, just to kind of give a flavor. Uh, I find, obviously, if you've heard this, this series before, just putting a voice and a tone to what a reader or an author wants to get behind that messaging of that book, it just makes all the difference. So for this particular episode, I will have a, uh, a guest who is an author, and my guest today is Sabina Sulat. Uh, Sabina has worked in human resources and organizational development for the past 15 years. In 2018, Sabina found herself unemployed for the first time in her career and used that experience to write the book, Agile Unemployment, Your Guide to Thriving While Out of Work. She also holds the Agile hosts the Agile Unemployment Podcast, the top unemployment podcast in the U.S. Her current work through her company, Reworking, focuses on helping others to build confidence and resilience as they navigate through the all aspects of being out of work to find careers and jobs that align with their values and skills. So that's very timely for everything that's going on today. Sabina regularly speaks to groups and organizations to help others learn to take control of their careers and to help corporations take a human first approach with their employees. This fall, Sabina will be taking part in the Beyond Lean In book tour, joining fellow female workplace authors for a series of events across the country as they share their knowledge and insights with others, regardless of gender. Sabina's record uh, second, excuse me, second and yet untitled book will be released in the fall of 2023, tapping the topic of explaining how work works to those who are just starting their careers. And that's such a great topic because I think Sabina, um, you know, we go to college, we, we learn, we take tests, we write papers, so on and so forth. And um, yeah, I think many people may just see it as a stepping stone to getting a job, getting in the door. Um, but it, that sounds great that you're writing this book about tackling the topic of really explaining what, how work works, like what it, I mean, obviously I don't know the details of what you're writing, but it sounds interesting where it's kind of like the dynamics, the psychology of what that actually means for somebody. And before I, I, I kind of pick your brain on that, uh, Sabina and I had met when she reached out, having heard about the series, wanting to discuss her book. We got to talking, had a conversation, got to know each other's work, um, podcast, everything that we bring of value to our clients and our network. So here she is joining me for that. And now real quick, back to that upcoming book, Sabina, is that kind of my understanding? Just kind of giving an, an introduction to really what that means. Yeah, I think you, uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm so, like, I was really looking forward to this. We're, you, you bring up a really good point. We're taught how to do a job or maybe you learn about an industry. It could be something like, you know, going to law school and learning how to be a lawyer. 
or an accountant or a nurse or a doctor or teacher, but no one teaches you how work operates. And what I really mean by that is there's this thing called the employee engagement cycle that a lot of organizations have. And it and it's how they manage employees during different phases of an employee's tenure with the company. Like there's a way to interact with them even before you hire someone. That's the attraction recruiting phase. And everybody has specific responsibilities in each phase, but no one ever tells the employee, oh, this is what you're supposed to do in this phase. And it will great how you act during, say, the retention phase, which is where your performance, your development happens. No one pulls you aside and says, by the way, really key things like your money, your advancement, uh, even your reputation are all crucial in this phase. And here are ways to leverage it to be successful. And like, have you ever worked somewhere you notice there's that one person who like skyrockets to the top and you're like, but they're not the best at what they do. <laughs> they're okay. like, how are they getting that? Yeah. I can almost guarantee you that person consciously or unconsciously has mastered the employee engagement cycle and they know how to build those relationships and how to leverage it for their career. Yeah. And what's interesting is, yeah. is I don't think, I think we come out of school thinking that if you work hardest, yeah, if you work short of burning out, that's going to show people how, how much you're worth and how, how, how valuable you are. Can I say right now, that's a big fat lie. And it, it is one of those things. I, I think it was probably ingrained by prior generations. My grandparents worked that way. My my parents worked that way. And it's not that you shouldn't give 100% when you're at the job, but I think we are at this kind of great new stage of employment where the employee is in the driver's seat. I will argue that with anybody who wants to argue that with me. And it really is just a, a mental shift of realizing how valuable employees are. And I think at one point, workplaces really valued employees. And there are workplaces all over the globe that definitely show their appreciation. But it's your life. It's your career. You have to take ownership of it. You have to direct it because no one's going to hand you anything. And it doesn't take that much work. I think it's understanding where your value lies, how to leverage that, how to increase that, but also how to combine that and align that with what you really want in life and what's important to you. Uh, and those are, those are key things. And that's a lot of what the second book is about. Yeah. Um, when I got out of college in what, 2000, 2000, um, it was essentially, there's the career center, go get a resume, go online monster.com at that point and find a job. Uh, whereas since that time, I've done a lot of volunteering at the university of Hartford and there's, you know, mock interviews, uh, mock like, uh, networking events. Um, but even those don't go, I don't think there's anything included in education still that really speaks to what you're saying. Um, we work life teach. balance or anything like that. Yeah. You know, if you, if you use the wrong word or phrase, somebody's going to get lit up, but like work life balance, um, yeah. your own values, what's important to you. 
Um, and I think so many of us went into our jobs with that mindset you're trying to avoid for your readers, where we just kind of work hard, work hard, hoping mm -hmm. that somebody's going to notice, but not really putting ourselves in the position and packaging it in such a way that somebody notices. So there's a lot that you forfeit if you don't go into it with that focus you're talking about, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, to your point, we teach students, and this is high school, college, grad school, really anyone starting their career. There are tons of resources that teach you how to get a job. Very few teach you how to actually manage your career, how to control it. And it, it again, it's you don't have to be you know, a, a corporate raider to do this. You can do this, whatever job you have. It's really making sure that your job serves you, not the opposite way. And again, I think the pandemic was showing employees the value that they add. I had a client in the middle of a session who just kind of exclaimed like, wait a minute, I'm the asset here in all of this. And I'm like, absolutely you are. I'm so proud that you've realized that. And you go into the workplace and you give 100%. You're given a paycheck. You control whether you want to stay late and work on a project. You control, you set your boundaries, I guess is the best way of saying yeah. that, rather than feeling beholden to do that. Mm -hmm. And I will say this, I, I've i worked a lot with Gen Z in this in the second book. I love Gen Z. They are like asking for things we have wanted to ask for, but we're afraid to ask for for so long. And I think we're going to see so much happen in the workplace in the next 10 years. I'm so excited about it. Yeah. And what stands out to me is that just because somebody's realizing there's this growing self-awareness of how we need to focus for ourselves, mm -hmm. go after things for ourselves, um, we're, we're the ones in control that that doesn't lessen or compromise any value that the organization gets. I mean, I would argue that it increases it because the person Thank is you. more self-aware of what the what value they hold so they can give more value. Well, they're happier. Happier people are more productive. They're better to be around. I think for a while it was starting to feel like this one-way street where I give and I give and I give. And yes, I get a paycheck. I get benefits. But I want to be seen as a person. I want to be valued for being unique and me. And instead of having to be like everyone else at work. And we now talk about things like psychological safety. And there's an expectation that my manager is going to coach me appropriately and things like that. Like I get asked all the time, is it okay if I look for work while I have a job? My response is absolutely. But when you are at that job, you give a hundred percent. You know, there's none of this like short timer getting out attitude. If you're getting a paycheck, you give a hundred percent. And, but you're also a free agent. Um, in the U.S., we HR folks uh, lovingly call it, you know, right to hire, right to fire, meaning no one is obligated here. Uh, very few employees in the U.S. are obligated. You need to have a contract and you're usually at a very high level or you do something so unique. Uh, but most of us are, you know, right to hire, right to fire. Mm -hmm. So that goes both ways. Your, your company isn't obligated to keep a job for you. They don't have to tell you why they let you go. You can leave at any point in time as well. 
I mean, for the most part, that's how it works. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, I, I dragged you right into the trenches to, <laughs> to, to go into the topic right away, but let me take a step, a couple steps back. Um, sure. yeah, I jumped into the future. Like, what are you going to be doing in the future with this book? All right. That's now- very rare. Usually it's the, I like that though. Cause usually it's the opposite and I'm given like a minute to talk about the new book that I still haven't titled at the end. So you could given me a nice allotment of time. So I appreciate that. No, I just um, didn't know it was going to happen, but um, just went through what you want your next book to be about. And I just, uh, in working with students and being a coach, I just realized the value of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've talked so much about being a student that we're given the information to regurgitate for tests, but we're not really given the right coping skills. And I would argue, I mean, we refer to them as coping. Like, what are the skills that you're really using to survive? But I don't, you know, not to, to beat a dead horse, but I think it, there's a lot of value in those kind of skills where we're thinking about our thinking and how we're approaching something. But in any way, um, Sabino, why don't we start with who you are today? What's the work that you do with your clients? Can you give us a little taste of the different areas uh, you're working in today just to get a feel for who you are? Yeah. Oh, thank you. Uh, I have my company reworking and I knew I knew that I wanted to go and kind of work on my own. Uh, I love the work world. I just don't think I'm really well suited for it. So I love everything about work, except I don't like me personally. (laughs) I like working hard. I don't like going into a place of work. I think part of it is I'm not a political animal. Mm. I, I don't do that well. Um, I, like most people, I get very focused in like what's important to me and, and my job. And it's very hard for me to see that what's the sun in my universe is like a distant star in someone else's. And so I'm doomed. That's a great way to put it. That's an amazing <laughs> way to put it. Cause I've, I've I always thought about mine. It's yeah. Not. Okay. But I, I It'll be I've a always book title one day. Yeah. Cause I've always, when I've thought about why I don't like, working in an office yeah it always has come down to my priorities don't reconcile to someone else's priorities not that i think there's any less value to it but and and we've seen so many people and and here's the thing your priorities don't have to and your values don't have to mirror mine um Mm -hmm. but i think if i think you're going in such a direction that it doesn't it's just it can be very compromising and you're left at the the devices of someone else you're left at the emotion of someone else um you know great leaders you don't find them too often you know everybody else is just kind of trying to survive managing things they bring in their ego they bring in uh emotion they bring in all these things there's a lot of baggage in the workplace let's be honest so if, if i'm going in with my values my priorities and trying to help something and i see too much of that it's like you're not able to tap into a great workforce if you have a lot of that but in any case go on i'm sorry oh no no i love i love these um i i kind of love where all this conversation is going but you're you're 100 right we we tell someone okay so this is this is your job and it's really important and i'm going to basically determine compensation bonuses advancement on how well you do at your job and then you go into the workplace trying to launch a program or a project or get something done 
and you're stalled because there's all these other things that no one talks to you about. And you're like, well, wait a minute. If you're not prioritizing my job, why should I? Mm. And it, it gives a very mixed signal to an employee. And yes, I'd had enough of that. <laughs> and my last corporate gig, I was hired and I give them credit. They told me as they were hiring me that the person who had conceived of the role and all the expectation on it was leaving the company. And I thought, well, they're being very open in telling me this before I'm hired. That stands for integrity to me. That'll be great. But no one else cared. So that person left and I had this role that no one really cared about as deeply. And it was not a great tenure for me. And that was kind of the deciding factor that maybe corporate life isn't meant for me. And I had, so we'll go back to um, when I lost a prior role in 2018, I had what I thought was the dream job. I thought I had arrived. It had everything I wanted. It had title compensation. The, you know, I want a certain amount of cash. I, I admit that. And I, I got in the dream job and my role, my thought was, okay, I'll work this job. It'll be my last corporate role. My retirement career or my next role will be on my own where I will write and talk about the workplace and all things employment. I lost that job after six months. So for the first time ever, I was out of work and nothing prepared me for it. So let's kind of take the conversation the opposite way. You and I were talking about everything we weren't prepared for in work, but then there's all this stuff you're not prepared for when you're not working. And it was overwhelming with the administrative part because none of those entities talk to each other, but they're all tied together at a state level. Uh, there's not one website you can go to for all of your aid and so forth when you're out of work. You have to log on to all these different websites and it can be overwhelming. You miss things. But above all else, nothing prepared me for the psychological impact of losing my job. Uh, I I, I still think I'm really good at what I do. I still talk about things in HR and learning and development. But when you lose your job and someone says, you're not coming back here anymore to do this, you question yourself. And what's worse is we don't talk about those things. I think we're getting better, thanks, unfortunately, to the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's now okay to go on LinkedIn and say, I'm looking for work. That was taboo three years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, now we can do that, but we still don't talk about the more emotional impact being out of work has on your reputation, your psyche, your soul, your well-being. And when I was out of work, I was out of work for a year, which drove me crazy. I, I never thought it would have taken that long for me to get a job. And every time I had to do something different to take care of myself while unemployed, be it figure out how to get out of a financial bind or uh, figure out uh, how to use a, a benefit that the state offered me, I'd always, you know, kind of vet, vent to my friends going, you know, why does no one teach you this? And then I would go to, I'm going to write a book. And when the pandemic hit, and I no longer had a three-hour commute. I'd gotten a job. 
it was a great job, but I wasn't happy. And I think for the reasons we got into earlier, I'm not a corporate animal. Mm. Uh, the pandemic hit and I started writing the book. I got inspired by a friend I had met on LinkedIn. Uh, he was writing his book. I decided to start my own. And then I started to realize I can build something from this that will help people. So now to answer long-winded way of answering that first question, <laughs> I coach people through unemployment. I coach people through reemployment. I have the podcast. I talk to groups. I blog about unemployment. I you know, write articles. I talk to women's shelters, veterans groups. Uh, I'm working with an organization that helps recovering addicts get a second chance at a career. Um, there's so many more applications to this book than I envisioned. Um, yeah, that's gotta be incredible that, that you're writing it for one particular purpose. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm assuming, you know, okay, that's what I'm writing it for. There's a good chance. Some other people will catch wind of it, maybe a, a market or a target that I didn't anticipate, but it sounds like it's gone beyond that. It has. I just thought of it as being this book that would address things people don't normally think about when being out of work. Plus it would be almost like a roadmap to help people in what you can do when you lose your job. Or now there's this, I have this audience that's growing of people who are afraid they might lose their job and they want to be prepared. I'm like, yes, yeah, you are the, yeah. you are, you are the target audience for this, I think. And yeah, it's it's very gratifying that I will have people reach out to me and they found a new application for it, uh, which is great. Sabina, to learn a little even more about mm -hmm. you, digging into your history, what was it from your youth or your adolescence that kind of kickstarted your journey into your career? Um, whether you thought you were going to end up uh, fascinated with workplaces and mm -hmm. HR what were, what were the first couple of steps? Was it um, family encouragement? Was it friends? Was it, you know, um, coincidence? Was it education? How did that path start for you? Wow. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, I, I don't think a lot of little kids go around for Halloween dressed as an HR person. Uh, I can't <laughs> they might imagine. Now. They might now. <laughs> I can't imagine that being a really popular costume by Hasbro or whatever. But um, I think for me, I always liked helping people. And that sounds super corny, uh, but making someone happy even for a minute. So a lot of my jobs were in customer service, things like that. And the other thing is I come from a family. Let's just say we're passionate and leave it at that. And so I got really good at being able to handle somebody who is in a moment of extreme passion. Let's leave it at that. But, um, <laughs> okay. Okay. One of my early first jobs was I worked at a hotel. I worked the front desk at a hotel. And when you work the front desk and someone's checking out, you are blamed for everything. Mm -hmm. And usually, uh, you know, most of, most of the staff at that time, we were pretty young and so forth. And, we would have people be angry that their room was sold or their eggs weren't cooked right or their key card didn't work. And rather than just sit there and take the abuse, I think I just got really good at talking through the problem with somebody and having them leave happy. And I think that's a trademark in my career. 
Uh, I looked at HR that way. I looked at uh, going into uh, corporate learning in that respect. And I think that served me very well. So when I wrote this book, the idea was anytime I learned something new, it was without a doubt a journey that cost me time or money. And when you're out of work, those are two things you can't spare. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want anyone else to have to struggle like I did. And uh, I'll give an example. A lot of people who maybe are white collar who lose their job hesitate to take unemployment insurance. That's your pay. They also hesitate to look into things like their health care benefits or their they're called SNAP benefits. But mm-hmm. People might know them as food stamps, your nutritional benefits. And I was in that group. I kept thinking, oh, I can't take unemployment pay because other people need it more than me. I don't want to take their money. It doesn't work that way. Anybody who's worked is entitled to it. SNAP was this eye opener for me because things got really, really desperate. And I was Googling like, help. And I got this thing of like, you know, your SNAP benefits, have you investigated those? And I'm like, no, I have not. And I went down to the office in my city and I applied and I qualified. And it was over $300 a month for food, which that was great. But it also, I could have had it much earlier. That $300 I was paying out of my savings account or my unemployment pay could have been going for a car payment or education to get another job, things like that. So it's really important that people know what's available to them and how to leverage it for success while they're out of work so that you can focus on things like rebuilding your confidence, looking for that dream career, all of those things. You don't have to worry so much about getting by every day. Yeah. I love that you bring up the fact that you worked at a hotel. I did that too. And I've always said, and I've written about how you have gone to school, got a couple degrees, but that for me, what, what set the bar for me in terms of how I produce for others, how I deal with others, how I work with clients or whoever it may be, were those for me, like blue collar jobs of working in a factory with my parents than working in a hotel like that frontline customer service quality uh, quality control kind of environment. Um, so it's amazing. That's just another example where, yeah, education is great. Memorizing things is great. But those kind of environments kind of, you know, you're forged by fire. You know, you're thrown into the fire when you're that young and <laughs> yeah. you have to put something out. Yeah. Somebody's mad. You're the face they see. Therefore, you are the organization and they're going to let you know it. We, a couple of things, like you mentioned earlier, these, you know, life skills that you pick up when you have a job at that level, you learn those life skills, like mine of being able to soothe somebody and being able to problem solve. Uh, Those are two skills that are in massive demand right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they're transferable. You don't have to work in the industry that wants them you bring that skill with you, which a lot of people I think are starting to realize. A lot of employers are starting to realize it. But the other thing, when you work in an environment like that, that I'm gonna say, if you work for a larger company, like the last company I left had 80,000 employees globally. 
it was it was a behemoth. When you work in something like a hotel, a restaurant, you see how every department is really interdependent on every other department to do their job. I think there's more of that kind of camaraderie, that understanding of how the whole ecosystem works. Mm. Yeah. And to your first question to me, I think that's really helped me in writing this book in the work that I do. When you're out of work, it's not just getting the job back. It is rebuilding your self-esteem. It's keeping your financial self as whole as possible and then recovering from that. Nothing exists in its own silo. And I think that mirrors people. There's, there's not just one facet of you, right? And all of those, all of those things that, you know, all those pillars of self-care need to be addressed, yeah. not all at once. And it'll yeah. shift the balance and the amount, but you have to keep everything running as well as possible at all times. Having a training ground like a hotel or, you know, a job that's like where you're the frontline employee, I think you have an understanding and respect for that, that not a lot, not everybody gets. Yeah. I think the uh, the word that stands out that you used is ecosystem. Mm -hmm. The dependence on or the dependence from other people uh, when you're working with them and you see what goes into you delivering for your position, yeah. your results, your bottom line. Um, so it, and it's a, I think it's a bit humbling when you see that, when you see really what goes into it, who are the faces that are making you shine as the representative, they're providing everything behind you. You may be dealing with the customer, but it's so-and-so that has to run up to their room or run out to wherever that they need to solve that problem. Uh, so I think, yeah, ecosystem is such a great word to use. So, so was, you're no longer the sun. Now you are part of the solar system. Mm, exactly. Get it that exactly. way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that plays into that. Um, that plays into the book that we mentioned before we started recording, um, The Courage to yeah. Be Disliked, where I'm reading it now and it gets to the part where I'm generalizing it, I'm paraphrasing, but there's an importance for your own value that instead of keeping things vertical where it's like somebody's saying good job, that that means if you're saying good job to somebody, it means like you think you're better than them, which is please read the book. It's great. I may be butchering it, but that there's something to the horizontal relationship where you're saying thank you. So no one has the upper hand. You're just kind of building each other up in the in the environment. So that stands out in those particular roles because there's so many people like in the, the blue collar field uh, or industry, whatever it may be, whatever field it may be, where they get so much done, but, you know, they don't get the respect that, that they deserve. But in any case, so when you where did you go after um, how old were you about uh, during your work in the hotel? I was in college. I okay. I'd actually what'd you go to school for? Oh, so this is great. Um, you asked, like, how did college maybe impact what I currently do? I was a philosophy major. Um, okay. You, you're not you're not going to get rich with that. You're um, <laughs> it's a very and I went to a very unique school. And what I appreciate it, it's really about as pure a liberal arts program as you can get. And I think that ties back into working at a hotel or seeing that ecosystem because the liberal arts educates you in this way of you having a little bit of everything. So there's like an appreciation for it and an understanding that 
we I I was actually with someone I went to school with last night and we were talking about we were forced to do things that were out of our comfort zone. So I'm I'm thinking like if you were a big science jock in high school, you go to a science college and you get an engineering degree, a physics degree. When you become a liberal arts student, there's nowhere to hide. Like you can't rely on the thing you're best at. You can't Mm -hmm. stay in the humanities or in music or something like that. You're forced to learn everything. And there's also something that comes with maybe not mastering, but maybe meeting the challenge of a topic you probably weren't comfortable with. And it's that I think being comfortable with being uncomfortable that I learned from school very well. I was uncomfortable the entire time I was there, Uh, but I go back and it helped me be able to handle the unknown very well and realize that, okay, the worst thing about the unknown is it's unknown. Therefore, I want to know what it is to take any fear out of it and to understand it. And maybe this will be something I really like or can do. And I would say that this sounds so silly, but mastering calculus in college really helped me see that. I was Mm. not a math person. I did really well in that topic. Um, and uh, I feel triggered. I did horrible <laughs> at calculus. I was, I was amazing at math. As soon as there were more shapes than fucking numbers, I'm like, I, I'm, I'm over <laughs> so this. I can't. The, the college I went to is St. John's college in Annapolis. We have a sister campus in Santa Fe, same school. And it's very unique because there are no textbooks. Instead, you take what are called the great works of the Western world And you use those as your textbooks. So you don't read a textbook on religion. You read the Bible or Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther. One of the unique things we do is we study Ptolemy. And if you know anything about Ptolemy, which most people don't, Ptolemy mathematically proved that the earth was the center of the solar system. Hmm. You, You can't dispute math, right? It works out. We know that it is not the center of the solar system. Mm hmm. But for centuries, that was the belief because he mathematically proved it. it. It showed you that, first of all, this impossible thing I've proven mathematically, you can't argue with math, um, but that it is this thing of even when it's so right, it can be wrong. It, it, it's something that um, uh, you can take the simplest idea and flip it around and change it and actually convince people for centuries that it is the truth, but also that you can do all that. You can mathematically prove it and you're still wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it teaches you to be so open-minded. And I think that was one of the things I took away from college and I bring to the workplace is understanding it takes conversation. It takes applying the work hearing different opinions than determining things for myself, but always be open-minded that whatever you thought could change immediately. So Uh, what made you, what made you, uh, (laughs) if I heard you right, major in philosophy and I'm not judging at all, Mm -hmm. major in philosophy, go to this liberal arts school. What was it that kind of crafted your mind in that direction? 
to go to that school, it was, I went to my most trusted teacher in high school and said, I need ideas for college. What do you suggest? And he suggested it to me. He said, based on knowing you, I think this is where you should go. And he was right. Um, and I liked it that I was going to go to grad school and it was a great foundation for graduate school. Uh, so it, it just worked out perfectly. Where'd you go to grad school? Where? Or for yeah. what? I I for actually was one of the like fledgling students for Walden University. Okay. Uh, and why I picked it at that time, it was very odd that you didn't have two years and endless income to go to grad school. Uh, I, a colleague of mine who is pretty advanced in her career, we both went there at separate times. And we had a conversation about, remember when people questioned the validity of this and now everybody's online in education and we were such trendsetters. But I picked Walden because I wanted to study psychology. They had a very flexible program. And then my first semester, I took a Psych 101 course and discovered the world of industrial organizational psychology, mm -hmm. which is the workplace and didn't look back. That was That was it for me. So what did your career look like after after school? After school, I I actually ended up um, working on a political campaign. And when that ended, one of the uh, donors was starting his own business in his garage and liked the way I managed the volunteer group, asked if I wanted a job. And as the company built, I was the one who's like, hey, can we maybe have insurance? Um, should we be filing payroll taxes? And that all fell to me. And so I became the HR person. And okay. as the company grew, my role grew. And then it got sold off to a British company. And I found myself out of work. I, well, I had left work because I had a family member who was ill, my mother. And I took care of my mother uh, until she passed. And then I was trying to find a job in HR and that wasn't happening. I ended up working for a company where I studied total quality management, which is think of it as an efficiency expert. Mm -hmm. When that job drew to a close, they kept me and asked me to manage their call center, which is a very unique uh, environment. It is a very hard environment to manage and work in. Um, people have very complicated lives. They face challenges most people can't even understand. Getting to work is one of the hardest things for people uh, who take these jobs because they're usually single parents. They usually don't have an, you know, a degree, sometimes not even high school. And they wanna do good solid work to take care of their families. And that's a challenge for them sometimes. So it was a very unique environment. It can wear you down pretty quickly. I was still trying to get into back into HR. Um, this is a good story, so bear with me. I know I'm being long-winded, but I got a, a company called Magellan Health, national company, reached out to interview me for HR. I didn't get that job. The recruiter and I hit it off. She found another job for me because she liked me. I didn't get that job. Over a year later, I come home one night. There's a message that uh, I get this really 
lovely voice saying like, do you remember me from Magellan? I remember you. We have a job. I think it would be great for you. I called her the next day and it was in corporate learning. And I told her like, I know nothing about this. And getting back to what you were talking about, about skills, she said, we can teach you that. Mm. You have things we can't teach. You're a good communicator. People remember you. You're engaging. These are all things we need in someone in learning. I, I think this is this is your job. There's no argument. Come meet the vice president of learning. Within two weeks, I was working there. And I think about this recruiter almost every day because she changed my life for the better. She saw something in me. When I've hired people, I've tried to use that philosophy. I use it when I coach people, when I talk to corporations of looking beyond that resume, going beyond the surface. I'm, it was a life lesson and it changed my life. Yeah. It's amazing to come across those people that, you know, you may go yeah. into a situation, you're interviewed or you meet somebody from HR. You, you, the script is, you know, I go in, put my suit on, I go in, they ask a question, I answer, I leave. Do they want me back for another interview? Do I hear back from them? And end scene, right? Mm -hmm. But then every once in a while, you come across these people that um, they step out of their roles. Uh, they step out of their role, meaning it could have been easy where she just asked you the questions. You didn't yeah. get the job. Okay, peace. But every once in a while, there are those people that go above and beyond their positions and just kind of stand out and remember people and, and make these life-changing decisions and or calls. I think we need more hiring managers and recruiters like Margaret. Uh, Shout out to Margaret. I know, Margaret, you're awesome. And But I also think we need to do that for ourselves. And I think a, a, a weird specialty of mine is I, and I ask people to do this when they're out of work, look at this as this opportunity to do something you want to do or what you've always wanted to do. Odds are you have that base skill set because we always do things we like and we're good at. And without even knowing it, you could have acquired most of these skills. And it's a matter of repackaging and branding yourself. And I hate talk like that, but nothing else fits. And putting yourself out there as this person who, again, don't market yourself as the profession or industry you had, but as the person with the skills. Because mm -hmm. you never lose those skills. And that's how you need to put yourself out there to maybe get that job that's aligned with your values and your dreams. Um, so. so does that lead up to where you are now, Sabina? In an odd way, I never thought I'd be doing this. Um, I, I like security. <laughs> The steady paycheck, the idea mm -hmm. of benefits, things like that. But I, I often tell people, I don't know if I've ever been happier professionally than I've been in the past couple of years because I get to help other people. I feel like I add value every day. I'm doing things that I genuinely like. I mean, there's a lot that goes to this that I hate. Like, I'm sure you and I could talk for hours about creating content or you know, the things of our job that we don't necessarily enjoy, but then I get to do things like come on the podcast with you. I get to take somebody who maybe 
is questioning themselves and doubting themselves and help them find a career where they they feel fulfilled. Um, I give them hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, I help them see a version of themselves that I see. Yes. Uh, and that I think is really important. I'm not trying to make too much of my own role, but I think no, how many no, of no. us would have done something differently if someone had just pulled us aside one day and said, you have a tremendous amount of potential. And sometimes a Margaret, everybody needs a Margaret. Yeah. Or be a, or be a <laughs> Margaret for other people. You know absolutely. what I mean? Absolutely. Like, but be your own Margaret. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And I know that's an important message of your work is first and foremost, be your own Margaret. She's going to like trademark her name in this capacity. <laughs> but um, but I think that's that's key, too, is just yeah the same kind of ripple effect or the same kind of impact you want to have for yourself about giving giving yourself that grace, giving yourself that respect, giving yourself mm-hmm. that credit. Um, I think as powerful as that is for you, just as powerful as just seeing it in others and just commenting and sharing what you see in others, not just the passive, how are you doing? Great job. You know, tell me about your day. This was my day, but like really looking someone in the eye and telling them what they're good at. Yeah. Um, I've mentioned before on here that I think once I started going back out and socializing or going, seeing people at work, the relationships were, were changed. Because again, you didn't know when the next time was that you would see this person. You knew what happened Mm -hmm. In March 2020, you thought you were going home for two weeks and some people you didn't see in person for two and a half, three years. So it's powerful just to give somebody a little insight into what you see about them, not about what they just completed, a project, a role, uh, a mission, whatever it may be. Yes, obviously those two. Mm -hmm. But when there's nothing on the line, just pausing, stopping, looking at somebody and telling them what they're good at, you know, not scripted when it's when it feels right, when it's authentic, but letting people know. Uh, the greatness that you see in them. It's just, I don't know. It's just very, very important. Um, and I think it just makes all the the difference for just kind of creating this ripple effect through your community and, and into society, like these small little um, just, yeah, impacts that you can make in your daily, in your daily life. And, and these are things that don't cost you anything, expressing your gratitude and appreciation of another person one of the things I tell people, I get asked all the time, like, what do I do when I'm depressed and I'm out of work? One of my first responses is do something for someone else. Mm. It gets you out of yourself. You feel good because you've helped another person. They've expressed gratitude, hopefully, and you understand you add value. And that's an important, we all add value. And it's important to know that we I hope we we're getting past just identifying ourselves by our professions and our jobs. Yeah. That's yeah. that's a hard thing for Americans. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh and again going back to that book that I'm reading um The Courage to Be Disliked it speaks about that where mm-hmm. and people out here have spoken about that as well where your identity comes from solely from the work that you're doing where it's kind of like you got to hedge your bets um give 100% but not tie it solely to that particular environment or that particular person. If it's a relationship, you know, again, hedging those bets, having that, you know, not putting all your eggs in one basket, if you will. Um, but yeah, that's key. So Sabina, does it make sense from your childhood that this is what you're doing, even though this is not what you intended to be, 
does it make sense that this is what you're doing? Absolutely not. <laughs> I know. I don't know if that's the answer you wanted, but um, uh, no. Uh, and I, I kind not of even a, not even a little. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, if you want to like uh, get out the shrink couch and talk to me about this, we might have different answers. But I write about this in the book. So my I had a parent, my father, who was unemployed for a living. He would get a job. He abused the system. He would get a job, work it long enough to collect unemployment, do something to get fired. And uh, it was it was very uncomfortable to be around. We were never allowed to talk about it as kids. So we never talked about those difficult things that you need to talk about when your family is facing something like being out of work. Uh, I always swore I would never take advantage of the system. I would never use anything the system had to offer me for that reason. I, of course, went back on that. I needed those, that assistance, that aid. Um, I did not abuse it, <laughs> but uh, it, it, when I was writing the book, there were a few echoes of childhood, uh, but I don't, I don't, the book definitely did not come out of it. It came out of my own experience. It was just like, oh yeah, that did happen. Hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah. You always make these correlations. Yeah. Sabina, uh, what does leadership mean to you? Um, oh, that's a good this one. This is a good one for you just because of going from the corporate to, yeah. you know, being an entrepreneur to helping people. So what does leadership mean to you? What What is that? What makes good leadership? Great leadership. So leadership is incredibly important to me, having uh, worked in it, taught it, lived it for at least 10 years, if not more. That was always my specialty in, in the corporate world was leadership development. I think the easiest answer I can give you is uh, Spider-Man. Uh, with great power comes great responsibility. And I really do believe that. Uh, I think when you're a leader, there is a certain sacrifice you make uh, where your team comes first taking care of your team, developing them, making sure they have everything that they need, uh, being their advocate. Uh, I do believe you become an agent for the organization. I'm not immune to that. Uh, it's, it's probably one of the hardest jobs to have where you're kind of in that balancing act of being the agent of the organization, having the responsibility for your team. And it's lonely. It can be very isolating. So you also have to take very good care of yourself. It's a very difficult role to have. But I do overall think that for me, responsibility is, is the, the key word for being a leader in that maybe stepping back multiple times a day and saying, what is my major responsibility in this situation? Uh, am I mitigating risk for my organization? Or am I supporting and coaching a team member as they need it? I think that mindfulness is what sets really great leaders apart from people who like the title, mm -hmm. um, like the paycheck, but not that responsibility. Um, 
maybe the things, the harder aspects of the job. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you. Now we can jump into the book. Um, you've alluded to the book. You've talked about mm -hmm. kind of the background of where the book came from. Can you, I guess, formally introduce the book and tell sure. us a little more about maybe what was the trigger for actually where you actually decided to write the book? What was that process like? What can be, what can we find in the book? Yeah, lots of questions there. Uh, so as I said, I very jokingly, very sarcastically would say to people I knew whenever I would learn something like, oh, wait, I get free education. And I'd be like, "I, why does anyone tell you this? There ought to be a book. I'm going to write a book. And it would morph to that. It became a joke. Uh, and then I got a job, a much better job than the one I lost. And I'll be honest, it, it definitely was not as important to me. I was like, I don't care. I have a job now. Uh, helping other people, not so much high on my priority list. And it was a great job and I didn't enjoy it. And I didn't know why I didn't enjoy it. And I had gotten a connection on LinkedIn uh, with someone named Andy Storch. And I didn't know Andy. And I only accept connections if we have mutual connections or something like that. He and I had none of that. I don't know why I accepted, but I did. And so Andy and I were connected on LinkedIn and at work, we were sent home because of the pandemic. We were sent home in the middle of the day, like, you know, a snow day, like you're a kid in school. And I found myself home at two in the afternoon, which never happened. And I got a ping on my phone saying, you know, Andy's podcast is live. And he was interviewing his book coach and talking about his book his book coach, Andre Corder, uh, basically feels everyone has a book in them and you should write a book. And both of them were very infectious, likable in this podcast. And I started writing that night. And I reached out to Andy and said, you know, hey, you inspired me. He was incredibly supportive. He got Andre to help me. Um, both of them from the sidelines were incredibly supportive. They were cheerleaders. And then I realized with the pandemic, there was a need for this book. And I thought, okay, well, this is what I'm going to do now. And that was, I mean, it's that simple. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it seems that simple, but I mean, you were going kind of back and forth with it, yeah. but it just all came together with that kind of coincidental hearing of the podcast. I think when the moments right, like I work with a lot of people now who are writing books and people who want to write books will reach out to me. And it happens when it happens. There's no good time. There's no bad time. You have to make the decision of, yeah, I'm doing this right now. And no amount of coaching. If you're not there, mm -hmm. it's not going to happen. Yeah. I so was Sabina, there. As, mm -hmm. a, as an overview, what kind of path then do you take the, the reader on? Because I know you talk about like yeah. the, the mindset of someone that's out of work. You also talk about, um, you know, workplace policies, unemployment policies. Um, so how is it that you guide the reader through the message you want to deliver for them? How do you organize it for them? Yeah, I this was not the initial aim of the book, but there's the kind of I call it the administrative component of your assistance programs things you need to do for life, like get your household budget together, get your money together, your health care, all of that, your household. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's this psychological element of how being out of work impacts us emotionally. There's a term called enmeshment where you overly identify with something. A lot of us overly identify with our work and that leads to a lot. It can lead to a lot of unhealthy habits. The worst of which is putting yourself last and putting a job first. And this is what I had done in the job that I lost. I put the job first to my own detriment. Then when I lost the job, I had to face the healthcare issues I experienced from it, the neglect of loved ones, uh, disorganization in my home, all of those things. Uh, And then I had no job either. So you need to make sure that you are taken care of holistically. But then I also, I'd written the book like that and people who read it said, well, it's okay, but it's kind of boring. Then I added my own story into it and everyone's like, now you're talking. Uh, So I share pretty openly uh, what I went through of just that feeling of being dismissed and feeling like, you know, this, this, this big. Um, and there, there was a moment where, uh, I'm waiting out front. I've got all of my things in bags and employees are coming in. So everyone knows what's happened to me. And that was embarrassing enough, but then hearing my HR person and my former boss argue over whether or not they're going to pay for an Uber or a Lyft to take me back home because huh. I had taken a commuter bus in. I had no way home. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, wow, this is great. Um, you know, but then I had early wins after I lost my job. I was interviewing with some very, very top companies. And when it came to nothing after about six months, then it really hit me. And I went into an awful depression. Uh, and I had to pull myself out of it. Luckily, I had some loved ones who really helped me. And I share what kind of got me out of that place because it was really bad. And we don't like to talk about that uh, because it's very uncomfortable and it hits very close to home. Overwhelmingly, and this is more on the podcast, sometimes from the book, people reach out and say, okay, I thought it was just me. Mm. I thought I was the only one who went through that. I'm like, oh no, I have lists of people who've gone through that. And I think we should talk about it because I do think it's normal, but it's also recoverable and people need to know that. I think you do need to, I give a talk about grieving the loss of your job and how to deal with that. I get a great response to that because people don't realize they should do that as a way to move forward. Usually we move forward with these revenge fantasies or anger, and that's what fuels us. Yeah. If you put that to bed in a healthy way and learn from it, you are much better suited for the future. And you're least likely to experience trauma. And when you start a new job, that can be your focus rather than recovering from the prior trauma. Yeah. And I mean, there's something we said about um, obstacles, excuse me, obstacles we go through where. Yeah. The biggest hit is that mindset that we're the only ones going through it. Oh, no matter how much family, friends you have, no matter how supportive they are, no matter how much money you have in your bank account, 
being out of work is so isolating. I think because we, I, I was, I'm very proud of the career that I constructed and to question that and wonder, was I doing the right thing? What did I do wrong? 99% of the time when someone loses their job, they have done nothing wrong. Uh, shame is described as uh, feeling bad about something inappropriate that you have done. The first word most people use to describe being out of work to me is shame. And I instantly come back with the, what do you think you did wrong in the workplace? And it's, if they say anything, it's always this, I should have worked harder. I should have put more into it. And it's like, could you really have done that? Yeah. And usually it's a lot of talking with people when they're like, no, I was working 60 hours a week. I was exhausted. I'm like, there you go. There was nothing else you could have done. It is not you. It is a business decision. Yeah. I think in thinking about what you could have done, what else you could have done, that kind of mentality, Mm -hmm. I think you have to find peace in the fact that you did everything you could. Yeah. You know, and then you got to detach from the result because as long as you put everything into it and it didn't work out, I mean, that's beyond your control. And that's what drives us crazy is that anxiety of wanting to control everything, but there's only a limited amount of anything that we can control, no matter if it's home life, relationships, work. So let's flip that a little though. Instead of saying everything like you could have done, how about everything that you wanted to do? Mm, Of course. You know, um, because sometimes if you lose your job, chances are there's issues in your workplace that they've had to make staff cuts. That tends to lead to a very difficult, if not toxic environment. And that carries over to the individual. You, you go into that every day. Even if you work remotely, you feel it. And there's only so much investment you should be putting into that because we spend more time at work than anywhere else. Yeah. You deserve to have, I wouldn't necessarily say enjoyable work atmosphere because it's work. You should maybe get certain kind of pleasure or fulfillment out of work, but it certainly shouldn't be something that causes you medical issues, be Mm -hmm. it psychological, um, physical, um, that makes you, you know, the Sunday scaries as we call them. Yeah. Uh, That sort of thing. Then you, then you need to look for another job. It's not worth it. Yeah. Sabina, what, um, can you just go through, I don't know how you might've broken up the book, maybe in sections Mm -hmm. and then chapters within that, but can you give like some of the titles that people might find in there, in that path through the book? Yeah. Um, and I'm sitting here thinking, and I am not sure I actually titled chapters. Um, isn't that awful that I don't know that, but I do think I, yes, I did title them. Um, how embarrassing. Um, as no, I, not I at all. Not behind at me all. and check. Uh, but what I tried to do is do like a, try to write it in two ways. One was like a chronological order of you've lost your job today, get this book and start following it immediately. But also let's just say you've been out of work for a while and you find the book you can flip to a section that relates to where you are right now. Like maybe your primary issue is healthcare. I have a chapter on that and how you can use the Affordable Health Care Act and make sure that you're covered. 
or maybe you're struggling with motivation. For me, motivation and depression were huge issues. I found creating a routine uh, that included self-care and professional development was the thing that started to motivate me. Uh, but then I also, let's look at it as this story of getting another job. And I have a whole section on networking, your resume, interview, um, interview prep, and how to handle after an interview and negotiation. Uh, I think my favorite section is how to go back to work. Uh, we don't think about that. We think, oh, I'm just going to go back to work and everything's going to be fine. No. Uh, a couple of things. You need to prepare and end the unemployment phase of your life and start the reemployment phase. And that actually takes some strategy and thought. Returning to work is one of the most exhausting things you can do. You go from being home all day, or maybe you even have a part-time job. Now you're in a new job where you're trying to prove yourself. You're on all the time. You're trying to learn. You come home, you're too tired to make dinner, to clean, things like that. So I actually think there are ways to prepare to go back to work so that you can focus on work. And then I even have a section on, to me, losing your job is traumatic. That requires recovery. But when you're trying to survive unemployment and looking for a job, you don't have time for that. Our bodies and our minds take over and give us the energy we need, the focus we need. When you get to that calm, safe place is when that PTSD kicks in. Uh, I, I've worked with people who've gone back to work and they come back to me and say, I don't understand it. I can't sleep at night. I'm worried all the time. I'm like, yeah, your, your body's catching up. Mm. And they're like, I should be enjoying things. I have a steady paycheck. I have benefits. Uh, someone said to me, I can get sick now. And <laughs> I should I should be happy. I'm like, you are happy. You're just still dealing with this huge trauma that happened of losing your job. That's way out of my pay grade. Yeah. I can help people build resilience so it doesn't impact them as badly. But if it continues to impact you like you have, insomnia, constant worry, you might need to see a therapist. You might need to go into the EAP, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's something I didn't see addressed a lot uh, that I wanted to mention to people. So yeah, no, it's so important. That's kind of it in a nutshell. But I mean, listen, I, I was unemployed. I started working in the city in New York, uh, January, 2001, right out of college. Uh, mm. September 11th happened a month later, got laid mm -hmm. off and I just signed a lease for an apartment yeah. that previous August in the end, luckily unemployment ran out right when my lease ran out. And then I ended up back in Connecticut, but you know, and that, and here's the thing, there's the, the generational thing that happened my first job out of college. Mm. So the psychological impact on you, although hard is much different than if you are mm -hmm. already an established professional. Um, yes. So I've experienced it. It was a different time. Uh, I'm assuming with all the technology now and just being in each other's lives and seeing what's going on, it's a lot different now than it was then. Because if I, I was see. seeing on Facebook or whatever that my friends were all getting jobs and I couldn't find anything, that's got to take an additional toll that I can't even imagine 
having experienced at a young age, you know, mm-hmm. right out of college, maybe 21, 22 years old. But a lot of what you said resonate, even though I, I got laid off in a different time, that was the only time I got laid off. A lot of what you said and shared today resonates with me. Um, again, but yeah, I didn't have that pressure of anybody else in the house that was depending on me. It was just me. But I, I know that there is a lot that's psychological about it that we don't even consider. I love that you've said, you know, it's important to share your story because other people are going through the same thing. And again, there's that question of the facade, making sure that you have everything in control, that you have to be strong and all that, you know, societal bullshit kind of thing. But so let me share with you, I lost my job the week before a college reunion. And I live in the same town as my alma mater. People were coming to stay with me. You know, a few things say success, like, hey, I just lost my job. And I didn't tell anybody uh, for the first two days. And then it was the, you know, hey, let's stay up and talk like we did in college. And it finally came out. And of course, my friends were nothing short of supportive and helpful and everything. But and I got this, why didn't you tell us sooner? And shame. Yeah, you, I didn't say that. I'm like, oh, you know, everybody has stuff going on. I'm trying to downplay it. And even, even now some friends have read the book and they were like, I had no idea you were going through that. And I'm like, well, no, of course not. Um, people out of work do something called covering where you pretend everything is fine. You try to keep up with everyone else. If everyone goes to brunch and spends a hundred dollars per person, you do that. Even though you Mm. might not really have that hundred dollars, you keep appearances up. I I think we don't have to do that. Uh, You're afraid that if you share, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't have money for food you're going to be this downer or worse. You ask for help and no one helps you. My theory is let's be a little transparent. This is a way you're going to weed out who should really be your friends. Yeah. Um, Even if they say no, which is their right, they can still give you support. They can still give you, there's always something they can do for you. Um, and I think we have to be, start being a lot more open about this. Sabina, um, anytime I have an author on here, I always ask what the lessons are that you took away from writing the book. Uh, mm-hmm. Some authors speak to the actual writing process. Others speak to what they've learned themselves. I ask it in a sense, and you can respond any way you want. I'm always just curious most about how your ideas about the topic, the issue that you're covering evolve. Um, what might have changed from the start of the book to when it was out? What is it that evolved in your mind or changed in your mind? If it is writing habits, absolutely. You can share anything you want, but I'm always curious how putting out a book has changed you. Great question. I I mentioned earlier that this is not the book I intended to write. It was just going to be kind of a how to resource guide. I think it gains a lot by my sharing my story. I, I wanted my, my editor used to put these notes in the introduction of like, you come off like a victim. Do you, do you want people to see you this vulnerable? And my answer was this, hell yes. Uh, people need to know I went through what they're going through so that they understood the intent of the book, the, uh, 
they weren't alone and that they would get through being out of work. Um, and I felt I needed to share that a lot, um, which is hard because I'm an incredibly private person that held up my launching the book for a very long time because I didn't know if I was ready to put myself out there. So I think this whole experience has shown me that I needed to get past my own. I don't think it was insecurity so much as kind of a fear of what I was leading myself open to because let's face it, social media and so forth. There's a lot of trolls out there. Uh, things come up um, and that held me back and the desire to help people kind of finally overrode that. And I'm so glad I did. Uh, it's that thing of, you know, I wish I'd known sooner. I would have launched it sooner and maybe yeah. helped some other people. Uh, I learned that I could write a book. That was a, that was a really big deal for me of uh, getting through that. It had always been a bucket list item. It definitely opened career doors. When I met with Honoré Corder, the book coach, I thought I was going into this meeting to talk about writing a book. I left this hour-long meeting, and this is the incredible magic of her, with a business. It had never dawned on me to build a business on the book. Uh, I'm very grateful for that because, again, speaking to groups, uh, I hope to put out some courses to help people. Uh, maybe figure out how to get through the different aspects of being out of work, the coaching, all of that, the podcast all came from the book. So it doesn't just have to be the book. And we're at this stage in our culture where there are different audiences for different forms of social media. I reach mm -hmm. people in the podcast who would never buy a book. Mm -hmm. uh, I reach people on LinkedIn who don't have time to do either. Uh, you know, all of that. So I think Casting that wide net is really crucial. Um, Into those different ecosystems. Mm -hmm. Yes, there we go. Same thing, same theme. And uh, I think for me, a lot of my friends are shocked that I do this. Not that I'm doing it, but I do like the security of the steady paycheck and so forth. And to kind of take that leap of faith on myself, that probably should have been a lot harder than it was. And I'm really surprised that, you know, I say like some people can do this on their own. Other people need to get kicked out the door. I felt like losing my most recent job that that was me getting kicked out the door to do this on my own. But I already had an exit strategy in mind. I was already moving towards it. I like to think I would have followed through. So I think that's probably the ultimate, uh, comfortable with my discomfort zone that I'm in is like every day. Yeah. Um, it's reminiscent of the pandemic where it's something yeah. out of your control that just kind of um, um, expedites something that was already in motion kind of thing. And there are these moments where I'm like, oh, should I go back to, uh, you know, corporate world and, and, and so forth? Cause it, it's very safe and nice there in some ways. And then something will happen that affirms like, yeah, I'm, I made the right decision, uh, which is always nice. Yeah, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. Sabina, um, now that we've covered your book, as we were corresponding back and forth, you had mentioned a list of books that you wanted yeah. to just mention that you say helped you throughout your process um, 
when you were unemployed. Uh, can we go through each of those? I don't know if you have the list. If not, I have the list up. I have it in my head, but if you have it in front of you, and yeah, it seems appropriate since this is like, you know, book talk. Um, Absolutely. The first book on your list is Creating Your Best Life, The Ultimate Life List Guide uh, by Michael B. Fersh and Caroline Adams Miller. You know, so this is funny. It's one of those books that you see it in the bookstore and you buy it because it looks like, oh, yeah, I should do that. And then it sits on your shelf forever untouched. That's what happened with me. When I lost my job, I thought, hey, this would be a great book to help me through unemployment. And like a good doobie, I read the first chapter and then didn't touch it. So fast forward six months later, when I'm in a pretty bad place and I need structure, I turned to this book very unintentionally. It was just like, okay, I, I need something to do. Let's read books. And it happened to be, I don't know whether it was on a nightstand or what, but I picked it back up. And it's a phenomenal book. It's how to, I think a lot of us are really good at writing down goals. And then we're shocked when they don't come to fruition because, you know, we wrote it down. Um, why has nothing happened? I wrote it down in my diary. No, this book focuses <laughs> on how to achieve. And it gives you things that are based on scientific fact uh, and that have been proven to help you actually achieve your goals, not in how you write them, but in the actions that you take, the environment you set up for yourself, um, aligning with your goals, things like that. I still go back to it. It's one of those books that you can just take a chapter and do it, or you can go through the whole book. I always find something new in it. It's, I can't say enough about it. Uh, the next one is The Bullet Journal Method, Track the Past, Order the Present, and Design the Future yeah. by writer Carol. Yeah, um, that one surprised me. I, I'm a consummate list maker, and unfortunately, I have that bad habit of the list just keeps getting longer and longer. And Then there are lists of lists. Yeah, and then you get to this point of desperation where you put things down on your list of things to do, like shower. <laughs> just so you can scratch something off and feel accomplished. <laughs> and I discovered bullet journaling as a way of like tracking really good habits. It's a way of being creative. So people take it to an extreme. Their bullet journals look like these works of art where they track everything from like how many steps do you walk a day to how many glasses of water you drink to how much money you're saving. And now you'll see things on like TikTok is, like things like the money challenge, they're almost like these living bullet journals because you check in daily and you do these tasks and bullet journaling shows you progress where the to-do list does not. And it's progress over time. And I found that so helpful to mm -hmm. me when I was out of work because I was actually every day working towards something. And I would look at the bullet list on my refrigerator and feel really good about myself. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, the next one, start with why, how great leaders inspire uh, everyone to take action by Simon Sinek. What a great book. Seriously. Um, there's a school of thought that you are at your best at work when you combine passion and purpose. And there's another good book that I don't think I put on the list called Great at Work that talks a lot about that. But Simon Sinek 
uh, tells these wonderful stories. Like he has a great Ted talk on YouTube where having passion is almost this way of guaranteeing success. And uh, he tells this great story about the Wright brothers and their main competitor and who had everything they didn't, including money and the backing of the federal government. And yet I can't remember this person's name. We all know the Wright brothers. And what the Wright brothers had was that passion. And they knew their why, as uh, Simon would say. And I find it incredibly helpful. I go back to it. I will listen to parts of his TED Talks or the audio on it to kind of get a pep talk. Um, ironically, uh, right before the pandemic, the last social thing I did was go to listen to Simon Sinek speak in D.C. Uh, and I'm like, what a, what a way to kick off the pandemic. Huh. Um, Keep you so, motivated. Yes. Uh, the next one, The Artist's Way. And I'm oh. assuming it's a separate book, a separate book, yeah. The Artist's Way at Work by Julia Cameron. Yeah, uh, these these books are fascinating. It's if you don't think you're creative, these books are a way of kind of finding your inner artist and not caring what anyone else thinks about them, not wanting to be liked and a way to bring creativity to your daily life and then bringing that to work. Um, I really it, it was a nice way of kind of learning new skill, but also being able to look at how do I want to carry that into my future work? Found it so helpful and fun. Um, the next one, you must write a book, Honoree Corder. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you had mentioned her. She's your, mm -hmm. She was your book coach. Yeah, that's, she, that's actually free on her website. And it's, if you don't know where to start, it, it gives you a great, uh, outline, I will say this, uh, when you're out of work, you have more time than you will ever have any other time being constructive, doing something you've always wanted to do, like write a book. You don't have to finish it. Um, no one else has to know about it, but it actually is a way of keeping busy, of centering thoughts. And she gives some very practical advice. Definitely a key book. And the last one on your list, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor yeah. Frankl. Yeah. Um, I was, uh, before this interview, I was thinking about it because you had said you wanted to talk about books. Um, I don't know if you've ever read the Frankl or not. Yeah, I did. I did. I got yeah, it. So you can agree with me. I'm going to say this. When you're not just out of work, but there are times if you have depression, anxiety, there can be triggers for it. So this is a book I would say proceed with caution because it's written, Frankel wrote this about his experiences when he was in a concentration camp and he talks about that. So that can be very hard to read. Uh, I'm actually part of a book group where we read this every year and discuss it uh, at the end of the year. And there have been times where some of us have said, really can't do it right now. The takeaway from the book, if you persevere, is Frankl found out that he discovered in the camp that anybody who was able to put meaning to their life, finding the thing that they live for, uh, was the thing that sustained them and helped them absorb tremendous tragedy, but also to move forward with life. I think that's something 
we should all work on um, in, in various doses. It could be your family. It could be your education. Uh, it's called logotherapy. And it's one of those things when you are wondering what's the point, what's the use, even just being able to find something that gets you through the day can be so important and show you there mm -hmm. is a reason for all of this. Um, when I look back now at being out of work and there were times where it got really bad and I would wonder like, what is the purpose and point of this? I look back from this point, I go right now, what I'm doing was the reason. Like if there was a reason I was out of work, it was to write this book and help other people. And I'm not saying that to sound immodest, but I did want to get out of the experience being able to help others. And I thought it would be going back to work. I didn't know it would be the book. Uh, but I think if anyone who's ever questioning themselves digs in and taps down to what is the thing I live for? What is the thing that gives me joy, pleasure, motivation, and start to tap into that? It is a way of handling those feelings uh, yeah. that almost puts them to bed. Yeah. Um, with that same kind of warning you gave for what, you know, the basis of the material, his experience in the concentration camps, I highly recommend the book. Yeah. Um, I think it should be required reading, like whatever the, the, the age level is that it should, it would be appropriate for. I mean, for me, mm -hmm. I mean, I think I read Night by Ellie Weissel in high Ooh. school. So, I mean, if we were reading that, I don't know if they're still reading that in high school. But this is just a, it, it has that same um, tragedy of Night. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, as you were reading, as I was reading his book, it's amazing how he, he describes what everybody's going through, the losses that he had, mm -hmm. and how people were suffering aside from the physical, just in pain, not knowing what was coming, they, you know, wondering what happened to their loved ones. And he just kind of had, he'd gone through the same thing, but he kind of learned this calm just by doing exactly what you said. Um, well, and the irony is what got him through his days in the camp were helping his fellow prisoners tap into their yeah. meaning. And yeah. I think that's such a beautiful thing. And I tell people, like, when you're one of my little sayings is instead of something happening to you, maybe it's happening for you. Yeah. And I firmly believe my being out of work was a reflection of that. I have known people who have faced tragedy and it's a delicate topic, but what do you want to come out of that? Because you control... You don't control the tragedy, unfortunately. The payoff is you control what good you bring out of it, what you mm -hmm. find in it, be it an awareness organization, be it how you approach the next level of your career, how your family lives. I have a client who had a great job in the C-suite. She lost it. She and her family had to go through quite a lot. They were very overextended. She's now a school teacher and she's never been happier, but her family had to downsize, rearrange how they did everything. But she said the difference is 
they now act like a family instead of people sharing a house. And she thinks that's why it happened to her was she was in the wrong career. Everybody in her family was miserable. She and her wife were on the verge of divorce. And now she's like, I don't even recognize us anymore. And I'm so glad, um, you know, so you have to think about what am I going to, you have to find a positive and tap into it. And it might not be the first thing you think of. You might have to play around with that, mm -hmm. but how to move forward. Yeah. And I think that kind of message plays into what you've shared where despite what's going on in your life, losing your job, being between jobs, what is it that's going to keep you going? And yeah. it sounds hokey. It sounds cliche, but um, I think it's cliche if you just say it in a one, mm -hmm. in one sentence, one phrase and leave it at that. But I think we've talked about so many different examples. You've shared so many different examples of, of finding meaning and moving forward. I think we underestimate how much meaning comes from the internal, from inside yeah. of us. We're, I think we're brought up in society to look at, you know, whether it's materialism, capitalistic stuff, who's got what, who, what can you show other people? It's such like an external from the outside um, bringing up, I guess, uh, that we spend our entire lives getting to this point where it happens to you, it happens to me, and we realize much of like that book, uh, The Courage to Be Disliked, it's not what comes from the outside, but what you give from the inside. Again, it sounds hokey as hell, but I've had so many conversations on here with people, with guests, where they go through that lesson, they live that lesson, and it actually plays out. See, um, I don't think you're sounding hokey. I think you're no, sounding very I, empowering because no, no, it's, I, it's the, you know, if you're trying to control something that you will never be able to control, you're yeah. going to be disappointed. Yeah. I feel like people are waking up realizing how much control they have over their lives. You're not just a pawn. You are yeah. actually, you know, the queen is the chess piece that gets to move every which way. You really are that chess piece. Mm -hmm. And it, it's very, to me, um, I'll sound hokey now. I equate it back to the Wizard of Oz. where oh, you're, you're just trying to top me here, huh? I am, I am. <laughs> where Glinda, like, you know, you had the power all along. Yeah. And like, there's a point in time where you're like, wait a minute, what, why? And we do have to learn this. We can't, someone can tell us a million times. Yes. It, it uh, yeah, makes no dent too. whatsoever. Everyone gets mad at Glinda. Like, why didn't you tell Dorothy this at the beginning of the movie? And it's like, she would have never gotten it. She mm. had to learn it on her own. People need to learn it on their own. Exactly. Because you could say, you could you could have somebody that's younger um, in high school listen to our conversation. <laughs> and they'd be like, what are these old bats talking about? Like, <laughs> uh even if you don't just say to them, it's in the inside, you know, it's, it's the mm -hmm. power within you. Even if you don't just leave it at that hokey sentence, but you go into the examples that we give your mind, it's like, it's just not open to that. It's, it's like, it can't register the urgency until you actually go through it. And, and that's just another example of, um, you know, being forged by fire, like the hardship is going to test where your limit is your your failure i don't like the word failure but your failure how far you drop it's going to show you the foundation that you can then build from yeah i you know the way i i look at it and the way i kind of phrase it to students i work with is do you want to be a 
participant in your life or do you want to be the driver? Mm. And that seems to resonate a bit. Uh, and I, I do think it is something people have to learn on their own. But if you are at least open to the message and you've made the decision of, no, I want to be the controller of my destiny. Uh, I had a student I worked with last year who had their future set. They were going to go to med school. They had this great work history of working at the local hospital, working the emergency room. They even contributed to a journal article. They were all set for med school. In the pandemic, he realized if I go to med school, I won't have any life. I haven't had a quality of life in the past two years because of the pandemic. I don't want that. I want to have this well-rounded life and I do want to have control. Uh, we got him a job, which was great. And just last week he announced on LinkedIn, he started his own company and I like could not be prouder. Mm. Uh, and I, I thought I would back. I'm like, I wish I'd had that courage at that age. And it took yeah. me this long. So we there's all so many, there's so many <laughs> circumstances that go into it. You know, I mean, it, yeah. it's, it's your upbringing. That's why I always ask that question. When you start off your career, what was it that put you on that path? Was it your parents, your friends, other circumstances like serendipity, happenstance, coincidence? What was it just because we all have the, that, our own mix of factors that's going to play into how we get started and which way we go. Um, so you know. I would say to answer that again, I mean, I was taught to have a job and be grateful for it. Mm, exactly. And I, I think I progressed largely through accident uh, and maybe sometimes the desire for a better title, more money, a different company, things like that. I was not, I didn't set out to do it. It just kind of happened. I worked hard. Uh, I, I was lucky in a lot of ways. I think I had to lose it all um, to maybe come back to this thing of, you know, <laughs> maybe there's something else I'm meant for, something I'm really good at that I'm not doing that I need to take control of. Yeah. So in the same spirit of these books and what they did for you, what do you hope somebody says about your book? What do you hope they take away from your book? In that same kind of breakdown you gave of these books, what do you hope they take away from yours? Yeah. Uh, first, I hope it helps someone on even just that transactional level of some things they can do a little differently uh, in unemployment to maybe consider benefits they wouldn't have before to understand the interview process, anything like that, that, that would be great to say that it's helped them get through a bad time. I would not wish a bad time on anybody, but if they're going through it to find that somehow something I've said or written has helped them see the light or persevered, that would be just such an honor. Uh, I think in a longer term way, I want people to rethink how they look at work. That's why my company's name is Reworking. I want people to think about work differently, to realize we are the asset. You have a lot more control in your life, in your destiny than you ever thought. And really the only thing different, you know, back to Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz is 
you had the power all along. You just have to do things and think things differently Mm -hmm. uh, in order to have that future that you want and deserve. Uh, So I think that's my purpose. Awesome. Sabina, is there anything that I might have missed? Anything else you want to share? Anything that you're up to these days that you have upcoming that you want to share with me, this audience? Um, no, we, we've hit a lot here. Um, so I think it's things like uh, the podcast is out there. It's the Agile Unemployment Podcast. Any platform that you want, I think it's pretty much there. I post a lot on LinkedIn. Uh, the book is available wherever you want to buy a book. Um, at Amazon, they do allow me to offer it for cost. So it's much cheaper there. And on Kindle Unlimited, it is actually free to read it. I understand people reading this book are out of work. Money's an issue. I wanted to make it accessible to people. Uh, so for that, uh, the second book, hopefully coming out in the fall, still trying to buckle down uh, and, and get that out. And uh, the book tour Uh, Keep looking, like follow me on LinkedIn and you can find out about all of this stuff. Um, John, I'm just so grateful that you had me on and uh, we were able to talk about so much. Like we've covered a lot. Oh, yeah. Um, Like I said, just from my experience and being laid off, knowing what the economy does, you know, watching since then and being terrified that that was going to happen again recognizing that when it happened to me, I was at a different point in life and that makes a huge difference. I think a a lot of people just need to hear that kind of message, especially with, you know, obviously in the last couple of months, tens of thousands of people at people at different organizations being laid off. Um, Yeah, it's very timely. And I think the fact that your, your book also, in addition to the administrative focuses on the mindset, the psychology of it, uh, I think that's powerful. And, and, with the world opening up and mental health coming more to the forefront and being less taboo than it used to be. I think that plays also into this experience. So I appreciate that you put this book out there to help other people. Well, thank you. And thank you for sitting down for this conversation, Sabina. Oh, it's been a pleasure. This has been great. I've enjoyed it immensely. And Sabina's book is Agile Unemployment, Your Guide to Thriving While Out of Work. And if there's anything that I might've missed, didn't ask her, uh, I was going to say we're limited on time, but we've been going for like an hour and a half. I think we could still keep going. But if there's anything that I might have missed that you want to hear about or, or ask about, please reach out to me. I'll reach out to Sabina, see if I can get some feedback or any kind of information she may be able to provide. Absolutely. In the meantime, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. And I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye.